Welcome to Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca, and today we are talking about the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. This is a talk I gave to some students that were becoming Catholic, and so let me know what you think. Comment down below if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, and anything that I reference that is a book, anything that I reference in the talk, I try to leave a uh, link to, you can find whatever I was talking about in the description below. If I fail to do so, just let me know in the comments, and I will find you a link to be able to find whatever it was that I was referencing. Anyway, God bless you, God love you, and enjoy the talk. Okay, well, we'll start. We're gonna talk about the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass uh, primarily. So if anybody, if you want to uh, read a book that primarily, I have a few books that I'm referencing, but the biggest thing is The Hidden Treasure of the Holy Mass by St. Leonard of Port Maurice. St. Leonard of Port Maurice was a Franciscan friar who was, uh, the, he's the one who created the divine praises. So when you go to adoration, we say, blessed be God, blessed be his holy name. That's actually Leonard of Port Maurice who wrote that. He's also one who popularized the uh, Station of the Cross across Europe. And he was a great preacher. He would constantly preach on the fewness of the saved. And that's the one that he, he would give everywhere he went about how so few people enter into the kingdom of heaven and how we have to strive to enter through the narrow gate. And so that primary book was The Hidden Treasure, The Holy Mass by St. Leonard of Port Maurice. I'm also going to be referencing The Holy Bread of Eternal Life by Dr. Peter Kwabnetsky. I can never say his name right. It's a, he has like a Polish name. Um, and then On the Most Holy Sacrifice in the Mass by St. Robert Bellarmine. And then, of course, uh, The Missal. So, so uh, I'll introduce myself for y'all two who have not met me. Uh, my name is Adrian. I graduated from the University of St. Thomas in 2020 with a bachelor's in theology and communications. And I currently work as the production manager of the Guadalupe Radio Network in Houston, Texas. Um, and uh, that's all that's relevant about me. So we're going to be talking about the Holy Mass. And we begin all things by uh, invoking the Blessed Virgin Mary and asking for intercession. Uh, Venerable, the, or Saint um, Vincent Ferrer talked about how he would always invoke Our Lady at the beginning and end of all his sermons because that would be the only way that it could be efficacious. So we will invoke Our Lady at the beginning and then we'll uh, end with the Hail Mary at the end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady Fatima. Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Our Lady of Good Success, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. All right, so the first point uh, to note about the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is that first word, sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? What do we see constantly throughout the history of the church, uh, about the history of mankind? On all of mankind, we always see sacrifice throughout from the very beginning. Uh, all the pagan nations, they offered sacrifice to God. Why? Because the virtue of religion, the virtue of religion, the religion is, in fact, a virtue that we all must obey. The Ten Commandments, what most people don't know, is the Ten Commandments are laws that we can learn through our own volition. We don't need God to come down from heaven and tell us the Ten Commandments, but because we are wrapped in ignorance and because most people can never like figure out the Ten Commandments on their own, God deigned it to be just and right for him to come down and give us the Ten Commandments. But the first three commandments are in association to God and our Lord uh, shows us that these, those, laws, those laws are written on our hearts. So we should be able to actually know those things through reason alone. 
but it's very difficult. So he gave it to us uh, clearly written in stone. And so those, uh, the virtue of religion is ingrained in man. And that's why we see all different nations, all countries, wherever we go. When we came to the new world, uh, across Europe, into the new world, place where we have never had contact with the other continents, we see, what do we see? That sacrifice is happening in the new world. But these sacrifices are not happening to the true God, though. They're happening to Satan, to the devil. Because what does St. Paul say? St. Paul says that all the gods of the pagans are demons. And so well, these people are offering sacrifice to the devils. So for instance, like Hernan Cortez, he comes through the new world. And what does he see? He sees the Aztecs offering human sacrifice on the altar to the sun god. And so what is the, what is the reaction though? of Hernan Cortez. Hernan Cortez was a very holy man, a very devout man, a man who loved God above all things. So what did he do? He saw the evil that was happening in the world there, and he decided, what did he decide? He decided that he was going to conquer the Aztecs in order to give glory to God. And so he actually recruited a bunch of the different native tribes that surrounded the area. And they actually agreed. So if you, you often hear people say, oh, Hernan Cortez, because he had superior weapons and he had cavalry, was able to take over the Aztecs. Less than 1% of the army that attacked the Aztecs were actually Spanish soldiers. The rest of the army was neighboring tribes who the Aztecs were coming in and kidnapping people in order to offer sacrifice to their false gods. And so they came in and he, they raised the Aztecs to the ground and they set up true worship inside of the Aztec nation. And then we see Our Lady Guadalupe come in and Mexico becomes a Catholic country. Because why? Because of the holy sacrifice. Because we are recognizing that sacrifice that originated in one place needs to be transformed into a true sacrifice to God. So we're going back to Judaism. Judaism, we see throughout the beginning of Judaism, we have Melchizedek, the high priest Melchizedek. He offers the sacrifice of bread. And so that's, this is different and unique uh, for the, the world today because we think, okay, sacrifice is a bloody sacrifice. You have to have animals. Yeah, we're sacrificing humans. You see Cain and Abel, they are offering sacrifice of wheat and of the fruits of the, of the vine. But Melchizedek, he offered the sacrifice of bread. And so that's why whenever we think of the priest, we say you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest of God forever. So what does that refer to? So the sacrifice of Melchizedek offers this, this unbloody sacrifice. And that unbloody sacrifice is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so we see throughout what are these sacrifices for? Well, these sacrifices are to make propitiation for our sins. And so that's why we see throughout the history of the church, of the Jewish faith, that they are offering these different sacrifices in order to redeem mankind from the sins that they've committed. And so this happens for constantly throughout the history of the Jewish faith. And it doesn't end until Christ comes. Because when Christ comes, what happens to the temple? The temple is destroyed. And so what is that signifying? That is signifying that the old worship, that the worship of the, fall of, uh, of the, of the sacrifice of the animals has passed away. Because the sacrifice of the animals was never enough to actually make up our amends for our sins. And so it was only the sacrifice of Christ that is able to actually fulfill that. Everything else was a looking forward to the sacrifice that is Christ. That is why the holy fathers of the, uh, the patriarchs, those in the Old Testament who are holy and good men, did not go to heaven. They did not go to heaven until our Lord dies and he descends into Sheol, into the place, into the bosom of Abraham. He descends into the bosom of Abraham, the limbo of the fathers, and he brings 
and brings them out of the limbo of the fathers into the kingdom of heaven. Because even though they were making sacrifice, even though they were holy men, those sacrifices of the Old Testament were not enough to save man's soul. So, the, what is the Holy Mass? Well, the Holy Mass is the sacrifice of Calvary. So there, the question uh, on the most holy sacrifice in the Mass, St. Robert Bellarmine, the first question he asks and the answers in the questions is, why is it called Mass? And he goes through different theories of uh, why they, they, people didn't call it Mass, uh, where it originates, because when he's writing, he's actually writing against the Protestant heretics. So this is happening uh, right after the, uh, the Council of Trent. So Robert Bellman writes immediately after that, during the rise of the Protestant Revolution, of the Calvinists, of the Lutherans, and they're trying to destroy the Mass. And so when this is happening, he, Robert Bellman says, well, the word Mass it's often considered that it derives from the word misa, meaning to be sent. That it, is a, it is a missionary thing. That you're told that the holy sacrifice of the mass, you come into the mass and you're sent out from the mass. So that's one idea of what it is. The holy sacrifice of the mass, what Christ did uh, generally, the mass particularizes. And so whenever Christ dies, Christ dies once for all, right? And so at that moment, that is sufficient but because Christ desired that we particularize those infinite graces that are present at the sacrifice of Calvary, we are able to particularize that general sacrifice into particular moments in time. And that is what is happening at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Because when the priest is offering the Holy Sacrifice, it is not a re-sacrificing of Christ. You'll hear the constant uh, accusation against Catholics that we are crucifying Christ again. Uh, we are not crucifying Christ again. It is making present that one sacrifice that happened at Calvary. It is not a re-sacrificing of Christ because that would be a blasphemy and a sacrilege to crucify Christ again. Further, when Christ is sacrificed, whenever he is there at the Holy Mass, it is the same sacrifice. And that's very important because Christ, because God is above time and space, he can make present in reality, in our particular time, uh, the same reality that happened 2,000 years ago. And so uh, Saint, um, I forget who it was, I'm trying to think of who, which saint said this. One of the saints were giving an analogy for the different, uh, for how this works. How could this be possible that the same sacrifice is happening here, but also happening at the church next door, and also happening at the church next door over there, all at the same exact time? Well, they, the analogy that's given is the sun in the sky. So we look at the sun. The sun is given, sending down its rays and giving heat to all people. And just like if I'm outside and you're outside and you're outside and we're receiving the heat of the sun, it doesn't diminish the amount of heat that you receive just because someone else is also receiving it. So because Christ is infinite, because he is God, it makes that sacrifice capable of being infinite and happening at multiple places multiple times. The Jews actually were making accusations against the Christians saying, well, I mean, if you're eating the body of Christ, then you would be, by, then, by now, you would have eaten his whole body at this point. And that is also a misconstruing of what we mean. Whenever we say that we consume the body and blood of Christ, we mean we consume the whole Christ. The entirety of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is present in every particulate of the holy sacrifice, which is why it is so important that we give the utmost reverence to the Holy Eucharist, because the Holy Eucharist is not just, oh, there's his arm, oh, there's his leg, that would be a blasphemy and a sacrilege. No, every single portion needs to be treated 
as if it is God because it is God. And that's why so many Protestants, they'll say, Protestant ministers will say, you know, I would become Catholic, but you know, I look around and it's obvious that Catholics do not believe that it's actually God. Because if I believe that was really God, I'd be climbing on my hands and knees through a broken glass to receive him. But I don't believe that's God. I don't believe you believe it's God either. And how, how true is that though? We look, we look around and so many people do not treat our Lord with the reverence that he deserves. But that's another point that we'll come back to. Ex opere operato versus ex opere operantis. So these are two technical language, uh, words meaning, and that are in Latin, meaning uh, out of the work being performed versus out of the worker performing the work. What, what's the difference and why does it matter? Well, this is, goes into basic sacramental theology. So how does a sacrament confer grace? Well, let's say there is a priest who is a wicked priest. He's an evil priest. This priest has committed the gravest of sins, and then he goes up and he offers all his sacrifice in the Mass. Is that Mass still valid? Yes, it is valid, because it is not the minister who works there. It is actually Christ who works through the minister, which is why, if you ever uh, go to, uh, and this is something that can be done at any parish, all parishes should develop, uh, develop this kind of tradition, that is an ancient tradition, as the priest walks by and they're processing into church, it is common for people to bow to the priest. Why? Not because we're giving due reverence to the man, because you can say that, you know, I really do not like Father. Me and Father do not get along very well. I, me and him, we fought constantly. I know what Father does on the weekends. It's not good. But at that moment, when he is walking down that aisle, the priest is acting in persona Christi's capitas, as Christ the head. He's acting in the person of Christ, the head. And so we bow to the priest, not as reverence to the man, but instead out of reverence for the fact that he is acting in the person of Christ, the head. And because of that, the sacrament works ex opere operato, not ex opere operantis. So it's the work being performed. But there is, in fact, a grace that is lost by unholy ministers and by us being unholy. So the sacrament is going to be the same no matter what. If you baptize someone and you're not even Catholic, it'll be a valid baptism. But the amount of grace that is received is, is, is associated with the holiness and the intention of the minister and the receiver. And so if someone who is an atheist goes up to receive Holy Communion, he's actually receiving Holy Communion. It's actually Christ himself that he's receiving. But it's not going to be salvific for him. It's going to be damning for him. So while the sacrament will be still a valid sacrament if there's an unholy minister, if they a wicked priest says the Holy Mass, it's going to be a valid Holy Mass, but it is a sacrilege. But it's not a sacrilege for those attending. It's a sacrilege for the priest. The priest is committing a grave sin by receiving the sacrament, by, by confecting the sacrament in an unholy manner. So that is a, an important thing to know. Same thing with like all the, any abuses that happen at the Mass. The abuses that happen at Mass are in fact evil and are in fact something that is displeasing to God, but it does not change the sacrament itself, the actual Holy Eucharist that happens, as long as the, uh, the different elements that make up the sacrament are actually present. So what is that? That's the minister. You have a proper minister, a validly ordained priest. Intention, the priest intends to do what the church intends. Uh, the uh, proper matter, meaning it's bread and wine, um, even if there is like you have uh, leavened bread versus unleavened bread, even that would be okay. Um, and if you, uh, and if the priest uses the form, the proper form, meaning he says the words of, of consecration. If he says those things, then it is in fact a valid mass. The infinite value of the mass, that is another thing that's incredibly important to note. The infinite value of the mass, every single holy mass is worth an infinite amount. 
It is completely priceless. When we give a stipend to a priest for a Holy Mass, we are not paying for Mass. To say we are paying for Mass is, in fact, a blasphemy because you are making the claim that the money that you give in that priest is worth one Mass, and that is not true. That's why it's called a stipend, because you're giving a donation not for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, but in compensation for the priest. For the priest, the, the man is receiving that. But God himself, no amount of money, no capital is worth that of one Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. There's a story of this uh, old widow who was, went to a bakery and asked for a loaf of bread. And he asked the person there for a loaf of bread. And they told him, no, I'm not giving you a loaf of bread. I, don't, I am very busy. I don't have enough money to just be giving out handouts. He goes, I will offer one holy mass for you if you give me one loaf of bread. And he laughed. And uh, so she gave her the, he gave her the, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll put your mass stub, because they, they would give out like little mass cards saying that you would be receiving a mass set uh, for your intention. And he, so he gave her the mass stub and he put it on the scale and goes, okay, I'll tell you what, you can have as much bread as, uh, as, as will make this scale uh, match out. And so he puts a piece of bread on it and it doesn't move. And he puts another piece of bread on it and it doesn't move. And he's like, he's very confused. He's absolutely flabbergasted. And so the, the, the baker being an honest man, he's like, okay, because everybody looking and seeing, you're using a false scale. Like, what's up with that? So he switches them, puts it on. And sure enough, it tilts again. And so what happens? He goes and he goes, he's re recognized that he's an honest man. He's like, okay, well, I said that I do what, uh, whatever I can, can. I'll give you what's equal value for it. So he keeps adding different foods, breads, meats, everything that he can, adding onto it until the scale is completely full and the still, the scale has not moved. And the man looks at the old lady and begins to weep. And he apologizes saying, I did not understand the true value of the mass. You can have whatever you'd like. And the old woman starts to weep because she said, all I would like is just a loaf of bread. But I too am weeping because I only thought that the, that the mass was worth one loaf of bread. How much is the value of one holy mass? It is of infinite value. Why is it of infinite value? It is of infinite value because it is Christ who is God himself who is being sacrificed, who is infinite. That is why all the sacrifices of the past could not make up for our sins because when we commit sin, when we offend God, we offend infinitely. So if I offend you, if I break into your home and I steal your TV, well, I can calculate how much do I owe you. I owe you that worth of the television and of what it costs to fix me breaking into your home. But if I offend against an infinite being, if I offend infinitely, I cannot pay that debt. It is not possible for me to pay that debt. No amount of animal sacrifices can ever pay that debt. And so by having Christ die for us, he pays that debt that we owe because of our transgressions against an infinite God. And that universal, that infinite sacrifice that happened at Calvary is present at every single holy sacrifice of the mass that happens throughout the world. And how much of us disregard it or say, oh, it's too long, or oh, this is like, this is like being at Holy Week. It's every, there's like a dozen readings. We don't have the view that this Mass is absolutely priceless. It's the pearl of great price that we would sell everything for in order to just have that pearl of great price. On the topic of the 
infinite infinite value of the holy sacrifice of the mass uh, there is a great quote that was put in the book and i just wanted to read that to you because i just thought it was so beautiful and i think this was by saint Alphonse Liguori. i could be wrong uh, but here it is the entire church cannot give to god as much honor nor obtain so many graces as a single priest by celebrating a single mass for the greatest honor that the whole church without priests could give to god would consist in offering to him in sacrifice the lives of all men. But of what value are the lives of all men compared with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? What is a sacrifice of infinite value? What are all men before God but a little dust, as a drop of a bucket as a little dust? They are but a mere nothing in his sight. All nations are before him as if they had no being at all. Thus, by the celebration of a single mass in which he offers Jesus Christ in a sacrifice, a priest gives greater hope to the Lord than if all men, by dying for God, offered to him the sacrifice of their lives. By a single mass, he gives greater honor to God than all the angels and saints, along with the Blessed Virgin Mary, have given or shall give to him, for their worship cannot be of infinite value, like that which the priest celebrating on the altar offers to God. Moreover, in the Holy Mass, the priest offers to God an adequate thanksgiving for all the graces bestowed even on the blessed in paradise. But such a thanksgiving, all the saints together are incapable of offering to him. End quote. What a, wow, like what a beautiful, beautiful quote. And the most amazing thing about this quote is the recognition that even if we were to die as martyrs, even that would be infinitely less valuable to Christ than the offering of the holy sacrifice of the mass one time. That's just such a beautiful thing to meditate on. Anyway, we'll go back into the talk now. So the, other, the accusation that comes up when people say that, though, they say, okay, well, if every holy mass is infinitely have, has infinite value, then that means I just need to go to one mass, right? If I go to mass one time in my life, I'm good, right? No. Why? Well, for a number of reasons. One, every time you commit sin— You've now infinitely transgressed God, and you need to go to confession, repent of your sin. But confession forgives your sins, but it does not make up for your sins. So that is why the priest gives you penance, because you have to pay for the temporal punishment due to sin. If you don't pay it in this life, you will pay for it in the next, in purgatory. Um, and so you want to pay for it now, because the fires of purgatory are the same fires from hell. And those are the same fires. It is a it is a excruciating, horrible fire. Fulton Sheen gives the analogy. He says, "Hell is fire with no love. Purgatory is fire with love, and heaven is just love." So there's the, the kind of the analogy that's given there. But because of that, we have to attend mass regularly. And if we violate the laws of God, which one of them is to attend holy mass, then you have to make up for that not attending Holy Mass. Not to mention as well as the fact that even though the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is in fact infinite in and of itself, it has infinite worth in and of itself, because of our hardness of our hearts, how often do we actually have the proper disposition that when we go to Holy Mass, that we are prepared to actually receive those infinite graces that our Lord desires to give us? I would argue probably never. We are probably never at the state where we are so devoted to the Holy Mass that we are actually receiving the grace that our Lord desires to give us. And so we have to go regularly. It's kind of like when we pray the rosary. When we pray the rosary, we say the Hail Mary 150 times, right? 
And whenever we do that, we are saying, well, hopefully, at least one of these Hail Marys, I'm going to say, I'll say well. Because uh, if I just say one Hail Mary, the chances of me saying it well are not likely. But if I say 150 of them, well, then I'm probably going to be able to say at least one of those well. Um, we'll move on. Obligations we have to God. So we have obligations that we are required to fulfill uh, that are directed to God. That is what the virtue of religion demands of us. The virtue of religion demands that we provide something that is due to God. That is what a duty is, something that we owe to God for the sake of the fact that he has created us, he has made us, and we have those obligations. In the same way that a child has obligations to his parent because one, primarily, that their parents created you, and therefore you have an obligation to them by that very fact. A side note, a tangent. Um, one of the things we have constantly worrying about in today's society is, oh, what about Social Security? Oh, what about my 401k? What about saving up for retirement? This was not a thing before the modern era. Why was it not a thing before the modern era? Because your retirement package, your 401k, your investments into your future were your children. You had 12 children and there was an obligation on your children that they would take care of you when you were old. Whenever you can no longer take care of yourself, it was an obligation. It was a demand of the virtue that we owe to our parents as honor of your father and mother, which is why in the Holy Gospels or in uh, Holy Writ in the New Testament, what is the given? What Peter talks about, when I am old, I'll be taken where I do not want to go. Um, why, is, why does this come up? It's in reference to one thing. It's a reference to multiple things. But one thing is a reference to is the fact that when we are old, we are going to rely on our children. And so we should build up our storage, our treasure with our kids because we, they owe to us. Because as, you're, as a parent, you're providing them their food. You're providing them their shelter. You're providing them their very life. And so whenever you are old, it is your children who provide that for you. Uh, but that's a tangent. I'll go back sideways. Okay, obligations that we have to God. Praise and honor. We owe praise and honor that's due to God. We have to give to him. Why? Because, because of the magnanimity of God, because he's so great, because he's so wonderful, because of the very fact that he exists, that we owe to him praise and glory. So that's one thing, and that's one reason why we go to Holy Mass. There's our, there are the four ends of Mass. We give praise and glory to God. So when we go to Holy, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, are we giving praise and glory to God? That's something that we need to be contemplating when we enter into the, into the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. The second thing is to satisfy for sins. We are required to satisfy for our sins, uh, just like we were talking about a second ago. Every sin is a transgression against the infinite God, the person who loves us. It, think about it this way. Is it worse if some stranger insults you, or is it worse if your child insults you? It is always worse if your child insults you. Why? Because one, you love your child. And two, they have an obligation to love you. They have an obligation to honor and respect you. And so when we transgress against God, as children of God, we are actually giving a greater offense than those who are not Catholic, than those who are not uh, believers in the true God. If you offend God, then we owe such a great debt. Let me share a story from uh, the, the book I was referencing a second ago. It's filled with these great and beautiful stories uh, that illustrate all these different points. Uh, the Hidden Treasure of the Holy Mass by St. Leonard of Port Maurice. He says, St. Gregory narrates the, ma the masses which a poor woman caused to be celebrated every Monday for the soul of her husband, who had been enslaved by the Muslims and was thought, and was thought by her to be dead, caused the chains to be loosened from his feet, 
and the manacle from his arms, so that ever while these masses were being celebrate, celebrated, he remained free and unchained, as he himself declared on his return. How much more must not we believe such a sacrifice to be most efficacious for the loosening of spiritual bonds, such as venial sins, bonds which hold the soul, as it were, imprisoned, leaving it no power to work with that freedom and fervor with which it would work where it were it not for these impediments. O blessed Mass, setting at liberty the sons of God and satisfying, satisfying all the penalties due to so many offenses. So what is the, the, the point of that story? The point of that story is, one, he's saying, if this Holy Mass, which we have testified by this man who was able to be freed from his physical bondages, that he was captured and imprisoned, if the offering a holy sacrifice the mass for him, his wife offering holy sacrifice from every day physically loosened his bonds to be freed. How much more who our Lord desires the salvation of man, how much more if you are praying and you are offering holy mass for the satisfying of sins, will our Lord grant you freedom from your venial sins to, be, to keep you perfect? Because our Lord has asked that we be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And are we doing that? I would say, no, I am not doing that. And by offering the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass for that intention, our Lord desires to give us that grace. He desires that we be freed from all sin, not just mortal sin, mortal sin which damns us to hell, but also even the venial sins, because even the venial sins are an offense against God. We should not think to ourselves, oh, it's just a venial sin. I can do that. It's not that big of a deal. Even venial sins are an offense against God. And our Lord has granted us the grace that by going to the Holy Sacrifice, the Mass, and offering it for that intention, we can be freed from our venial sins through those sacrifices of the Mass and not needing to go to confession. Uh, go to confession for mortal sin. And you can confess venial sin and, and confession as well, as a side note. That's uh, a beneficial practice. Um, Bauer's book, Frequent Confession, on that topic of confessing venial sins is a great thing. Um, the third end of Mass is thanksgiving. So God has given us such great benefits. What, what is one? The fact that we're alive. We're alive today, and that is a great benefit because God has granted us the grace to be able to give glory to him today and to do the things that we do. Thank God for our health. Thank God for the fact that I can uh, get out of bed. Thank God for the food we have on our table. Thank God. There's so many things in which we can give glory to God. Give God the thanks that we, were, that we have been brought to the holy religion, that we've been brought to the true faith. And for us who were born and raised Catholic, who are born Catholic, what a grace to have been born in the true faith. Most people, as you know, uh, were not born into the faith. They had to work and had to find the true faith, find that pearl of great price. And so for those who found the great pearl of great price, what a grace there. What a thing to give thanks to God. What an infinite thanks to God that he has provided us something that can bring us to eternal salvation something that can save our souls. So what else matters at the end of the day? If we have all the glories of the world, but we lose our soul, what is the point? The, our life on earth is a drop in the ocean compared to eternity. The analogy it's often given is it would, in the time it takes for you to walk from New York to California and grab every grain of sand from California and bring it to New York, and you do that back and forth, one grain of sand at a time, by the time you've moved every single grain of sand from California to New York, eternity has not even begun. Because eternity is so vast and so mind-boggling that we cannot comprehend how long eternity is. 
And if we sacrifice that for 70 years of pleasure on this earth, 80 years of pleasure on this earth, what's the point? Who cares? Nothing else matters. And to supplicate is the last end of the Holy Mass. We, have to, we are there to ask God for things. So that's what supplication is. You're asking God for something. That's okay. It is okay to ask God for things. God desires that we bring to him our desires. That he desires that we ask him for things. That's why we see in Holy Writ, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be answered unto you. Because our Lord desires that we ask. And sometimes there is grace that he wants to give you. There is certain graces that God desires to give you, but he is waiting for you to request them. Which is why when Our Lady appeared to St. Catherine Labouret, the miraculous medal, and she said, the rays in my hands, these are the graces that I desire to give to my children. And then the St. Catherine asked, what about those other ones that are not actually exuding rays? So these symbolize the graces that I desire to give, but nobody is asking for. So here's a suggestion. When you're out of the Holy Mass and when you're praying, ask Our Lady, ask the God, ask God, say, give me the grace that no one is asking for. Give me the grace that you desire to give me that I'm not asking for. I want what you want. That is a, a prayer that we can say constantly because our God knows what we need. We know what we want, but God knows what we need. And what we want is not always what we need. So God may not always give you what you want, but he will always provide for what you need. Fifth, uh, fifth point, the Mass is a return to order. This is very interesting. Uh, in the hidden treasure on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, uh, St. Leonard makes a point. He says, St. Augustine says, he goes, you know, I don't know if this is true, but I'm just going to tell you St. Augustine said it. He said, there is a reporting, a report that people who attend the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, they age less. He said, don't bank money on this. He's saying, but there is a theological point that's being made here. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is timeless. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is entering into eternity. It is entering into the Holy of Holies. It is entering into a place where the angels come down and the saints come down from heaven. And we are entering into a time and a place that is outside of time and, and place. And that, that's mind-boggling to think about. And because of that, he says that whenever people attend Holy Mass, they actually gain a whole hour of their, of, of, of their lives. So if you're attending Holy Mass every day, uh, seven days a, one day a week, every day, seven days a week, you actually gain seven hours. Uh, so there you go. So there's your anti-aging cream. Uh, <laughs> and another point is the, the question of beauty. Why is it that holy people tend to be beautiful? You look at the saints, you look at the face of those beautiful saints, you look at St. Therese of Lisieux, who suffered so much, yet there's a beauty to them. Why are these people so beautiful? Holy things are beautiful. Holy things are timeless. And so where does this come from? Well, the attributes of being. What are the attributes of being? It's uh, good, the true, the beautiful. That is what the attributes of being are. So those who are directing themselves to God, who are uniting themselves to God, are necessarily going to be good, are necessarily going to be true, and are necessarily going to be beautiful. Beautiful things attract. Now, that's not to say just because someone is beautiful, that means they're good or they're true, but it's just a correlation that happens for, with the saints, the saints who bring themselves to Holy Mass, the saints who bring themselves before the infinite majesty of God that can't help but transform them. It can't help but bring them to a holiness and a beauty that is out of this world, that is something that is in eternity. 
The next point, zeal of my father's house consumes me. What does this mean? We see in Holy Writ, zeal for my father's house consumes me. Does zeal for God's house consume you? Are you filled with just anger, with, with righteous anger, when we see abuses happen to our Lord and to our Lord's liturgy? They, we should. We should have this, this holy anger, this holy anger that had our Lord sit down and fashion a whip with his own hands. People often say, oh, violence is never the answer. But Christ thought violence was the answer, at least twice, at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, he drove out uh, the, the uh, people out of the temple. And in fact, Cornelius Lapide says that he probably did it many times, but Holy Writ only records twice. So he actually sits down and he fashions a whip with his own two hands. And so he's contemplating this. He's not just like bursting out of anger and running over there and yelling at them. He deliberates. He's, he's thought about this. He's intentionally created a whip and he drives them out, scourging the men out of the temple of God. Why? Because they've turned the God's house, his father's house into a den of thieves. And so too, that same zeal for our father's house should be present in us. What is a great example of this? If you know the story of Jose Sanchez del Rio, Jose Sanchez de Rio was a Mexican martyr. He was a martyr during the Cristero Wars because what happened, the long story short of it, is during the Cristero Wars, the Freemasons in Mexico took over Mexico and started persecuting the church. So the Catholics were being executed just across our border. In fact, I just made a, uh, a pilgrimage to Monte Cristo Rey in El Paso. And if you stand on the top of that mountain and you look over, you can actually see into Mexico where just across the border, Catholics were being slaughtered right across the border that no one was, did anything for. Their bishops abandoned them. And so what happened? These holy cristeros rose up and they fought against the Mexican government for the rights of the church, for the liberty and exaltation of Holy Mother Church. They fought physically with weapons. And we say that the holy religion it should not be. It's, it's a pacifist religion. That is not true. We have a militant religion. That's why whenever you are confirmed, you are considered a member of the church militant. That's why we call it the church militant, because we are fighting for Christ, fighting for virtue against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, so we fight against principalities as well. But oftentimes these things happen in the world. And so how does this relate to the question of a zeal for our father's house consuming you? Well, Jose Sanchez de Rio, when he was captured, and this, Jose Sanchez was a 13-year-old boy. He was a child. And he gets captured because they're going off to battle and the general gets knocked off his horse. And so the horse dies, gets shot and killed. And so he, what does he do? He comes over by the general and he tells the general, take my horse instead. They need you more than they need me. And the general tells him, no, you're just a boy. And so what does he do? He gets off his horse and gives the general no option. He runs away. And so now that he has two options, just die for no reason or get on the horse and leave. So he gets on the horse and leaves and Jose Sanchez is captured. And so what happens? They actually lock him away in a Catholic church that they convert into a barn. They get this, the beautiful church, these beautiful Mexican churches that if you ever see them, they're absolutely stunning. And they turn it into a barn. And so he's looking over at the sanctuary where the high altar is there and the tabernacle is right above it. He's looking at it. And those soldiers had put their prize fighting cocks into the sanctuary of God. And he looks over and he sees the cock perching on the tabernacle where our Lord was present. 
and he is filled with holy anger. And he goes over and he breaks the necks of all the cocks that were, that were roosting around the sanctuary. That is the kind of zeal that we need. To end the story with Jose Sanchez, he ends up, they end up cutting off the bottoms of his feet because he refused to denounce Christ. And every time they told him, he would shout, Viva Cristo Rey! Viva la Virgen de Guadalupe! And so they cut off the skins of his feet and they made him march in front of the public square. And then they made him dig his own grave. And then they started stabbing him repeatedly. And he said, every time they stabbed him, he would shout, Viva Cristo Rey. And he said, if I ever stop shouting, Viva Cristo Rey, know that if I make the sign of the cross and the ground with my finger, that is what I am trying to say. He ends up getting shot by his own godfather and his godfather kicks him into the grave. The zeal for the father's house, does it consume you? Do we have this righteous anger when the holy sacrifice of the mass, when the sanctuary of our Lord is being offended? We should. We must. Reception of Holy Communion. The reception of Holy Communion. Are we receiving Holy Communion with the zeal, with the reverence, with the awe that we should? Here's another story. I love telling stories. Here's another story. Fulton Sheen actually heard this story firsthand from someone who knew this little girl in China. So Fulton Sheen, he was in charge of missions. So we'd hear all these great stories. And after hearing the story about this little girl, Fulton Sheen changed his life. Fulton Sheen decided after hearing the story that he would never miss a holy hour, ever. He would always go before the Blessed Sacrament once a day and spend an hour before the Blessed Sacrament. What's the story? So this woman, these, these, uh, these Chinese soldiers come into the Catholic Church, and so they, what do we see again? We see the communist revolution happening all over the world. The communists come into the Catholic Church, and they raid it, destroying everything. And they break open the tabernacle, and they throw down the ciborium, and so our Lord is scattered across the ground onto the floor. And so he takes the priest, and he locks him in the sacristy. And back then, most of uh, the churches, so if you ever see a church, usually they have the, the altar here, and the sacristy is right next to it. And so he locks him away in the sacristy, where he can see into the church and sees our Lord scattered on the ground. But every night, he would see this young girl sneak into the church while the guards were still in the church. He'd sneak into the church and she would kneel down in front of the Blessed Sacrament that's on the floor and she would pray for an hour before the Blessed Sacrament. Then she'd get on her hands and knees and put her face to the ground and consume one of the hosts from the floor. And then she'd get up and leave. And she did that every day until there was only one host left on the ground. And so he, she comes in and she sees the host on the ground. She does her holy hour. She leans over and she consumes our Lord and then kicks over a bucket. And the guard hears her and sees her and beats her with the butt of the gun to death. And so she receives holy viaticum. She receives the bread of life. She receives the Lord of Lord and she dies and becomes a martyr. Do we have that holy zeal? Do we receive holy communion with the zeal that this young girl did? recognizing that our Lord is present there, that we're going to give proper adoration to him, that we're going to love him, that we are going to receive him on our hands and knees, receive him, licking him off of the floor because sanitary, anything sanitary doesn't matter when we're thinking about the God of the universe. Let me get sick. Let me die. Let me, anything happen to me. I don't care. I want to give the utmost glory to God above all things. Nothing else matters. Dressing well for the holy sacrifice. I mean, you might be familiar with the story and the, the parable that our Lord gives. He tells us in Matthew chapter 22 of the story of the wedding feast. 
where he invites everyone to the wedding feast. He says, uh, all the princes and the kings, hey, come to the wedding feast, right? Come to the wedding feast. And nobody comes. So, he, so what does the king do? The king says, okay, well, invite everyone. Everyone is invited to come to the wedding feast. Tell all the peasants, everyone in the town, everyone's welcome to come to the wedding feast. And so people come all around. Everyone enters into the kingdom. Everyone comes. And the king points out one person out of the crowd. And he says, why are you not dressed for the wedding feast? You're not wearing the garment that, is, that gives a dignity to being here in front of the king at a wedding feast at the castle of, our Lord, of the king, of the, of the lord of the mansion, the lord of, the, of, the, of your nation. Why are you not dressed well? And so what, what does he do? He binds him and he casts him out of the kingdom. He casts him out where there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, there are multiple senses in which this, every scripture passage has several senses of which it is, it is being, uh, trying to convey. Of course, one, we could say we should not present ourselves to the Lord in sin. We should have a proper garment. We should be the garment of baptism, the garment of holiness, but also the dignity of how we dress at Holy Mass. Do we dress with reverence? Do we dress ourselves with proper dignity, recognizing that God is there. If you are getting invited to meet some famous person, if the Queen of England invited you to dinner, if the President of the United States invited you to dinner, if some famous, if, if we were a, a nation where we had Christendom and let's say the Pope invites you over, what do you do? Do you come in shorts and a t-shirt? No, you don't come in shorts and a t-shirt to meet the Pope. In fact, but the Pope is nothing in comparison to Christ, the Lord of the universe. You are going to meet God when you go to Mass, the, the God of the universe is present before you. And people show up in jerseys. And people show up in shorts. And people show up in t-shirts. Do we actually believe that that is the God of the universe? We say it with our mouths. We say, oh yeah, I believe that's God. I believe that's Jesus, right? But do we actually show that with our actions? And people will often say, God doesn't care how I dress. God doesn't care how I present myself. He just wants me to be there. Obviously not. Obviously he does care because the parable that our Lord gives out of the mouth of our Lord himself, he tells us, if you are not dressed, if you're not wearing the wedding garments at the wedding feast, what will happen? You'll be cast out or there'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So we should dress. We should give proper decorum. We should dress with a dignity that is due to the fact that we are at the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass. It's interesting because when I was at the University of St. Thomas, my professor, Dr. Rebard, he demanded of us in our philosophy classes, he says, what we are doing in an intellectual pursuit is a matter of dignity. It is a matter of something of higher things. It's a metaphysical ideas. We are contemplating God. We are discussing God. We are discussing these greater things. And be due to that, I demand that when you come to my class, you wear slacks and wear a collar. I'm not going to demand that you wear a button down. I'm not going to demand you wear a tie or a coat. Wear pants and wear a collar to my class. For the graduate students, he demanded that you wear a button down and a tie. Before the undergrads, he demanded that you wear pants and a collar. These little things, it changes not only the reverence we give to God, but it also changes our own disposition. When we are putting on our tie on Sunday, when we are putting on our coat, when we are buttoning down our shirts, when we are putting our shoes on, every single action that we do is directing our minds to what we are going to, what we're about to do. 
We are preparing ourselves, recognizing I'm putting on my Sunday best. The Sunday best has gone away. And so it's funny, though, because in the book, St. Leonard Port Maurice, he actually talks about the, uh, a similar problem that was happening during his time, but completely different. He was saying, these women come in dressed like they're going to a ball, wearing a ballroom gown, wearing giant pearls and all these things. And they, this, is not, this also is not given to the dignity of the office of the Holy Mass. Because if we're showing up, yes, sir? Well, just, just uh, not to interrupt you, uh, really funny you mentioned this, because we had the same discussion yesterday. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were sitting around, we were talking, and, and we brought up the Mass we went to the other night, some traditional... Uh, where the veils were worn by women, veils or hats were worn by women. Back in the days, that was actually required in the church. Mm. When I was a kid, I mean, I wore a suit and I wore a tie to church every Sunday. It was required, mm. not by the church, but it was required by my parents, by my upbringing, that that's what I wore. That was our Sunday best. And it's really amazing that you're bringing this up and you're talking about this because I mean, we just had to had the same discussion and it is tradition now, i'm a firm believer it's tradition uh you won't go to any catholic church including right here on any sunday and you will not see people dressed like we saw the other night at, at, at church and it was i mean it's the ushers very professional very nicely dressed nice suits everything looked very very professional and i think it's a big deal i think tradition is coming back i don't think that it's coming back Quickly, but I believe that some of the tradition of the Catholic Church is coming back, and it's just like that. The other night. Everybody could enjoy something like what we went through the other night. They would see the tradition, Amen. and tradition is good. Absolutely, praise be to God. Yeah, I mean we see this uh, constantly. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. That's, yeah, I mean we, it's it's, it's so sad that we we see. Like I keep saying, we, we proclaim with our mouth one thing, but our actions show something totally different. If you ask your average Catholic going to the average Mass, if they believe these things, hopefully they'd say yes. Hopefully they'd say yes. I mean, statistically, we saw with the Pew Research study that the vast majority of Sunday-going Catholics do not believe in the true presence of the Eucharist, which makes sense if we look around how people act and dress and present themselves at Holy Mass. Um, but yeah, we need these things. Why? Because there's a principle of theology. Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of prayer is a law of belief and is a law of how we live. And so if we pray in a certain way, it's going to shape the way we believe. So if I preach these things about like, oh, yes, we believe in the Eucharist. Yes, we have the Father at, on the pulpit preaching the truth of the gospel, but then we do not change the way we pray. We do not change the way we live. Then all the things, the things that we're learning in our mind will be vanished. They'll go in one, in one ear and out the other because it's not actually doing anything. It's not changing the way that we do things. It's not changing the way we pray, the decorum that we present. It's not changing the way we are living our lives outside of the church. All of it. It's a holistic idea. Every aspect of life. That is why we have to have, and this is a complete uh, <laughs> uh, sideline a, uh, digression. We, are, we have to build up Christendom. We have to build up a a nation that belongs to Christ. Because we look at the Middle Ages, the, the so-called Dark Ages, and we had all the evil things happening in the world where we were suppressing science and, and killing innocent people and witch burning. None of those things, these are all fabrications. Because the Middle Ages was a glorious time when we have Christendom that was rising up out of feudalism and directed to God. 
at King St. Ferdinand, whenever he was going off to battle, he promised that he would never go to war with a Christian brother because his Christian brothers were just that. They were their brothers. Even though they may not be blood brothers, they, because we are all Christians, we are brothers. Christopher Columbus, when he came to the New World, what did he say? Did you know Christopher Columbus was a Franciscan friar? Most people don't know that. So Christopher Columbus comes in. He says, these people are natural Christians. We need to baptize them. We need to make them Christians. Why? Because you cannot enslave Christians. He ended up making one of the Indians his godson. He brought over Indians to the, to the old world to meet King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. This was the holy religion. This was Christendom. This was what we have brought up. And it comes out of our prayer, out of our belief, and then flows into our lives. And so if we break down the way we pray, if we break down the way we believe, then necessarily society is going to collapse. How did we get to Roe v. Wade? How did we get to the situation with the LGBT ideology? It didn't come out of nowhere. All these people creating these theories of how to fix the world. Like, oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to make this legislation. We got to vote harder. Um, yes, yes, we should do those things. But that's not going to actually solve it because we are attacking the symptoms and not the problem itself because the problem is holy religion. We have to convert people. We have to change. We have to proselytize. We have to convince people that this is a true faith and it should change the way we live our lives. Otherwise, all we're going to do is set the revolution back and not, and they're just going to keep going forward back to where we are. We take two steps forward and then one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. We overturn Roe v. Wade. Are we going to end up right back at Roe v. Wade? Probably, if we don't actually change our society, if we don't change, because if we go back to a pre-Roe society, what did pre-Roe society give us? It gave us Roe v. Wade. So we have to actually go back to Christendom, to a nation that loves God. Um, back to, away from the digression. Um, the importance of Holy Mass at the time of your death. Holy Mass at the time of your death, it is the most important thing that we could possibly have. It is why we call it Holy Viaticum. Holy Viaticum referring to uh, food for the journey. The word Viaticum refers to food for the journey. You are given Viaticum whenever you were, or traditionally when you were going on a, a path, they'd hand you, oh, kind of like when you're, like when I go off, my mom was like, oh, here, take uh, this food with you on your trip, or here's 20 bucks just in case you need to buy some food on your, on your trip. Uh, the same way, on our journey, we desire to receive Holy Viaticum, the food for the journey, the Holy Eucharist, before we die. Because that Holy Eucharist that we receive is food that's going to enter us into the kingdom of heaven if we receive it worthily. And the same too with the with souls in purgatory. We can offer up these holy masses that are of infinite value for the holy souls in purgatory. And we need to do that because those souls in purgatory are in fact suffering. And we desire that they be saved. We desire that they be freed from those fires of hell. Now, if you're in purgatory, you're guaranteed heaven. It's not like you can accidentally, like you, you're not committing any sin in purgatory. Once you're in purgatory, you've made it. But we want to lower the amount of time it takes them to get through purgatory to heaven because purgatory is not fun. We do not want to go to purgatory. People often say, oh, I'm shooting for purgatory. No, 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 no. Don't shoot for purgatory because if you're shooting for purgatory, you miss. Where do you end up? You end up in hell. So we should shoot for heaven, shoot for perfection. And by the grace of God, he has given us this great grace that is purgatory that we can be cleansed of our sins and enter into the kingdom of heaven without having been made perfect in this life if we die in a state of sanctifying grace. But we do not want to go to purgatory. So let's offer masses for ourselves and for our deceased loved ones. For those who have died, who are deceased, we need to offer holy mass for their souls that they can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and for those that we desire, 
and for those that we desire have, uh, that have uh, committed grave sins. For those who have committed grave sins and we want them to come back to holy religion or someone that we are trying to convert and bring to the, to the true faith, we should offer holy sacrifice in the Mass for their soul repeatedly over and over again because it is by offering holy Mass for those souls that we can save them because our Lord desires that all men be saved. So we have to ask for those graces to save those people's souls. There's a great story that Father uh, Relier tells uh, about this, this Jewish woman and his child, her child, who is also, of course, a Jew, and he ends up converting, becomes a Catholic priest. And he tries to convince his mother to become Catholic, and she refuses her whole life. And so this priest, he starts praying every day and consecrating his mother to the, to the Holy Mother, to the Blessed Virgin Mary, every day. And then she dies, and she does not convert. And every day afterwards, he continues to consecrate her to the Blessed Virgin Mary, continues to pray for her every day, and desires her salvation above all things. And one day, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to this priest, and the Blessed Virgin Mary told him and showed him what happened to his mother on the moment of her death. He said that because of your consecrating her to me, and your constant offering of holy masses, and your constant prayer for your mother, at the moment of her death, whenever she was about to head to the judgment seat of God, because when we die, you have to remember, we have medical death, which we cannot define. Everyone defines it differently. You have brain death. You have, uh, and then we kind of find out that we, someone dies and you can uh, defibrillate them so they're not actually dead. The moment of death, the word death literally refers to the separation of the body and the soul. So when you physically die, we don't actually know if your soul has left the body yet. We don't know how long that takes. We don't know uh, at what point that happens. So the moment of her death, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to her, and she was about to come to the judgment seat of God. And Our Lady pleads with our Lord and says, Allow me to show her the true faith. Allow me, because your priest, he's talking to Christ, your priest, one of your priests, has given her soul to me. And so she tells the mother and shows her the true faith. And she had such a deep and interior conversion that if she had been resurrected, if she had come back to life, she would have abandoned her Jewish faith and she would have accepted the true faith and lived her life in accordance to the true faith. And because of that, she was able to be saved because she had the baptism of desire at that moment, at the moment of her death. But that only happened because that priest was offering Holy Mass for his mother, was consecrating his mother to the, to the Blessed Virgin Mary every single day for the rest of for his whole life up to her death and then continued afterwards because our Lord who is infinite, who is outside of time and place, can take your prayers from today and apply it to the moment of their death. It doesn't change what happened at that time, but our Lord knew that you would have been praying today for that soul then. He's not changing the past, not changing the future. You're just applying that prayer that you said today to that moment in history. So we have to recognize the glory and the power of the Holy Mass that our Lord desires to give us. Let me tell you a story that I thought was kind of funny that from the book. Um, I was like, whoa, this is kind of, kind of wild. He said, this is a lesson conveyed by the famous legend told by St. Antonius of two youths, both libertines. So they were, they were the liberals. They were this desire of freedom of, I do what I want. And we kind of see this today. This was Hundreds of years ago, we see the same errors come up over and over again. I want freedom. I want to do what I want. Um, these libertines. Both libertines who went one day into the forest, one of them having heard mass, the other not. Soon it is said, those, uh, there arose a furious tempest, 
and they heard amid thunder and lightning a voice which cried, Slay. And instantly came a flash which reduced to ashes the one who had not heard Mass. The other, all terrified, was seeking escape when he heard anew the same voice which repeated, Slay. The poor youth expected instant death when, lo, he heard another voice which, is, which answered, I cannot, I cannot. Today he heard, Verbum caro factum est, which is, and the word became flesh. His mass will not let me strike. So what is that saying? It was saying the devil was accusing us of sin. Because remember, when we commit mortal sin, when we are not in communion with God, we are in the realm of the devil. Saint, uh, not, uh, Saint Father Ripperger, the exorcist, he says that when we commit mortal sin, we, are, we belong to the devil. And at that moment, the devil can possess us at any moment. But God, out of his infinite mercy, blocks it 99.9% of the time. And it's only that 0.1% of the time where he allows the devil to actually possess us. But by right, the devil, we belong to the devil and he has, he has control of our lives when we commit mortal sin. We are not in a state of sanctifying grace. But because of this young man who was also in mortal sin, but he still heard Holy Mass that day. He still heard Holy Mass that day. Our Lord desired and decided to spare his life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Because our Lord desires our salvation. And so we offer these small acts that to us seem small, but to God, they're great. Whenever God sees our beloved Lord being lifted up in front of everybody and offering it to cry to God the Father, he can't help but think, wow, that is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We think, oh, the God of the Old Testament was totally different from the God of the New Testament. That's a heresy. That is Marcionism. That the Old Testament God is something different. That the New Testament God is something new. No, it's the same God. But what changed? What changed was the holy sacrifice in the Mass. Why is it that in the past, whenever someone would commit a grave sin, God would strike them dead immediately? Why is that? That that no longer happens. St. Leonard of Port Marie says, it is because of the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass. It is because of the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass that our Lord has given us so much mercy and has given us so much leeway that He doesn't strike us dead every time we commit such grave and heinous crimes because the infinite mercy, the infinite power and majesty of the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass has stayed His hand because He's the same God of the Old Testament. And we think to ourselves, God struck dead a man for touching the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant is being carried and it was wobbling and he went just over to catch it so it doesn't fall over, God struck him dead for that. Yet we handle the Blessed Sacrament with our hands and we touch Jesus with our hands and we touch the Holy Vessels and we distribute Holy Communion and God doesn't strike us dead. The only reason why that is is because of that infinite mercy that he has because of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. If it wasn't for the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass, we, I would have not, we would all be in a very, very difficult place. Um, would y'all like to take a break or would you like to just finish it off? Because the next part is talking about, okay, so we talked about all this and what is the manner in which we can go to Holy Mass? Everybody good? Okay. So, cool. So, uh, maybe tell them real quick why, um, did y'all notice during the Mass that the altar servers would kiss the hand of the priest yes. every time they'd hand mm-hmm. them. And then, uh, can you maybe, yeah. maybe that'll help with kind of, that kind of what's what. 
So you're, you're oscillating is the terminology it's used, meaning kissing, you're kissing. And the, the reason why is, so actually, if you kiss the hands of a priest, you receive an indulgence. Um, so every time you kiss the hands of a priest, you receive an indulgence. Um, so it's kind of tragic that we no longer do this tradition. But the, and if you kiss the hands of a newly ordained priest, you actually receive a plenary indulgence. Um, so the first year of their priesthood, you go over and kiss their hands and they give you their priestly blessing. But we kiss the hands of the priest because the priest, his hands are consecrated when he becomes a priest. His hands are anointed for the purpose of consecrating the Blessed Sacrament. Teresa of Avila, whenever she had her vision of hell, she said she could tell which ones, were, which ones in hell were priests because they were handling the Blessed Sacraments. And so their hands were burning with an intense fire because they handled the Blessed Sacrament. And so we kiss the hands of the priest in reverence for that thing that he does of consecrating the Blessed Sacrament. So it's not a reverence, like we said earlier, to the man of the priest, but it's a reverence to the dignity of his office. And I know a lot of traditional priests who hate having his hands kissed, but he allows it out of humility because he recognizes, one, it's a grace for the lay people to kiss his hands and receive that indulgence. And two, because he's a recognition that this is not an honor for me. For me, this is very uncomfortable. I do not want people to kiss my hands. But it is a reverence and a dignity to the fact that my hands can consecrate the blessed sacrament. Every time his hands are kissed, he is reminded, I am a priest of God. I need to uphold myself and think of these holy things, of the fact that with my hands, I can bring down the God of the universe. Like you, have you heard the term hocus pocus? Whenever people do magic, that term hocus pocus was actually created by the Protestants in order to insult and to deride the Catholic mass. Because when the priests consecrate, he says, hoc es im corpus meum. And so they would mock the Holy Mass by telling, oh, that priest goes up and he does his hocus pocus. And all of a sudden you say, God is here? It was an insult to the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass. It was a blasphemy against the priest and a blasphemy against the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass. And when I say blasphemy against a priest, I mean of the priesthood, not the priest himself, because you can't blaspheme against a man. But, the, uh, but this is, the, this is <laughs> it's just so mind-boggling how, how people will blaspheme something so great and magnificent that I would hate to be that person when they come to the, to the judgment seat of God, when they're at the pearly gates and uh, God shows them the, the, your life that you've done, everything you've done, people who insult the Blessed Virgin Mary, people who blaspheme the Holy Mass, this infinite gift that God has deigned to give us. He has deigned to give us this infinite sacrifice and we deride and we mock and we look at as, this, as something little, as something small. <laughs> it would be, it'd be a sad, sad day on your judgment seat to be at the pearly gates and God show you and you see, and at the moment of your death, when you're at the judgment seat of God, you're going to look back and you're going to see the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass and you're going to see it for what it really is. You're going to see the glory of what it truly is. You're going to see that the, all the angels have come down from heaven to witness this. All the saints of heaven, the communion of saints are surrounding you and everything is happening. And you see our Lord appear before the Blessed Sacrament. You're going to see it visibly. You're going to see it actually happen. And you're going to think to yourself, wow. I did not understand. I did not get it. And it is my fault that I did not get it. I did not want to get it. I did not give the proper reverence. And now I have to answer for that. 
and now I have to answer for the, for the blasphemy I give against the Holy Mass and say, oh yeah, this is just like a Protestant service. Oh yeah, this is no different from the other faiths. This is no different from all these other religions. Oh, all religions are the same. But no, God has given us this holy religion. He has provided us the grace to be here today, hearing this story, hearing this message, but also here being uh, baptized as a, holy, as, as a holy Catholic, to be baptized in the holy religion, to be presented with the truth of the gospel. And if we deride it, if we get rid of it, if we disregard it, it's sad. It would be a sad day um, for us when we, when we are at the judgment seat of God and have to answer for, for those sins. Okay. Cool. The manner in which to assist at Holy Mass, we'll go through it as quickly as possible, and hopefully we can, if you have questions, we can do that. Uh, okay. Different manners of assisting Holy Mass, I'll go through it fairly quickly. One, you can follow along with a missile. So some people like to go over, you have the missile, and you go through short, one by one, and you just read. Um, it's kind of fatiguing. It gets old over time. Um, and it's not the most perfect way, but it's not a bad way. It's totally a uh, valid way to do it. If that's the way that it directs your mind to God, then absolutely 100% do that. Uh, a second way is you can um, fixing your eyes of a soul on the sacrifice of Calvary. You can just watch. You can, you can look and see what is happening at Holy Mass. Um, and then you can also... Um, uh, pray vocal prayers during it. Not vocal prayers in the sense that you're actually saying it out loud uh, because you shouldn't be saying random things during Mass. But uh, some people like to pray the rosary during Mass, and that's okay. That's totally valid. It's not the most perfect way to participate in Mass, but it is a way. Um, the word active participation, which was coined by St. Pius X, uh, it was, people say that it was a Vatican II thing. It's not a Vatican II thing. It's uh, St. Pius X said we have to actively participate in Mass. What did he mean by that? The word active, which was, of course, it was in Latin, we translate it into English, actually refers to a, um, of a actuality, that we are participating, we are uniting our mind and our soul to the sacrifice, what is happening that the priest is offering to God. And so when the priest turns and he says, Orate fratres, pray, brethren, that this sacrifice in mind may be uh, worthy for, I forget what it is in English. Um, and then the, what we say, we respond, uh, we, that we are offering up that sacrifice for the priest. We are offering a prayer for the priest as he ascends. And for ourselves, we're offering that sacrifice as well. So we can do that by praying the rosary, following around the missal, uh, spiritual reading. Those kind of things are permissible during Mass. The most perfect way we can participate in Mass, though, is by following with our eyes and directing our hearts towards what is happening at the Mass. We follow with our eyes the movements of the priest, the silence that's happening at the Holy Mass, and contemplating the truth that is happening, the mysteries of the faith that are being presented to us. Um, and then St. Leonard of Port Maurice, I highly recommend getting this book, if for no other reason, but thus this section on how to attend Holy Mass. Because when he talks about it, he tells us, he says, okay, if you want a, something clear, you want to say, okay, well, just tell me what to do, and I'll do that. Well, he tells you in here, this is what you do. He says, during the confidior, do a self-examine and pray to the Blessed Virgin Mary to grant the grace to hear Mass with devotion. And so you want to, so what, you, what are you going to do? You're, during the confidior, when I confess to Almighty God and to Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, to Blessed John the Baptist, to Blessed Peter and Paul, and to all the saints, uh, may I, my fault, my fault, and most grievous fault, and to you, my Father, and so on and so forth. Uh, he said, during that period, leading up to the confidior, and then after the confidior, Direct your mind to God and examine your conscience and say, okay, am I in a state of grace? What have I done? What have I failed to do? What could I do better? And ask the Blessed Virgin, help me 
to attend Holy Mass with devotion, with clarity, with love. And then he says, from the ascension to the altar, uh, and to the, uh, from the ascension of the altar, so the priest at the foot of the altar, he does the prayer, unto the altar of God, to God who giveth joy to my youth. Um, they send the altar afterwards, and then until the gospel. He says, after he sends the altar unto the gospel, give honor and glory to God, recognizing your nothingness, and saying the following prayer. And then he lists a prayer in here that he recommends for people to say um, as they are preparing for Holy Mass. He says, O my God, I adore thee and acknowledge thee for my Lord and for my master of my soul. I protest that all I am and all I have are willingly acknowledged by me to be from thee. And since thy supreme majesty deserves infinite honor and homage, while I am but a poor, helpless being, Utterly incapable of paying so great a debt, I offer up to thee the humiliation and homage which Jesus renders to thee on the altar. That which Jesus does, I propose also to do. I humbly and abase myself together with him before thy majesty. I adore thee with the same humiliation which Jesus practices. And I rejoice and am glad that blessed Jesus should give to thee in my behalf infinite honor and homage." So he has these prayers that he says at each portion of the Mass. He says, repeat the prayers over and over again until you have them in your mind. And then you can pray from your heart, from your soul that has been stirred up by these holy words that St. Leonard has coined that direct us to the different intentions. So these four parts of the Mass, he says, from the elevation, uh, from the gospel unto the elevation. Um, at that point, then you're contemplating. So you'll notice that each portion of this that he brings out are associated with the four ends to which we owe to God. The uh, ends of supplication, the ends of thanksgiving, of adoration, of praise and glory, of those ends to which we talked about earlier, St. Leonard shows us that throughout the Mass, the different portions of the Mass are created to help us direct our minds to the things of God, to the things of holy religion. Uh, elevation to communion. He, so he says, from gospel to elevation, recognize the infinite offenses you have committed against God and the just deserts that God owes to you. What are the just deserts that God owes to you? That's hell. That we, that God, because of our infinite sins, because of what we have done, we deserve hell. It is only a mercy of God that we go to heaven. And then he says, recite the following prayers. And he gives us prayers that we could pray. The elevation to communion. He says, we should recognize all the good things that God has bestowed upon you. Offer him the infinite value of the mass and ask the angels and saints to thank God on your behalf. Now that's an interesting thing. Ask the angels and saints to thank God on your behalf. Because when we pray, we don't pray with perfection. We don't pray with as intentionality as we should. But when God prays, I mean, when the saints pray, when the angels pray, their prayers are perfected because they are in heaven. So let's ask the angels and saints to give thanks to God for us because we can give thanks to God and we should, just as St. Leonard says, we should give thanks to God directly. But as well as that, to give a greater glory, let's ask the saints and the angels to ask God uh, to forgive us and to give thanks to him from communion until the end of Mass, after making communion, ask God for those things that you need and ask for great graces. And then praying, and he gives us a prayer that we could pray, asking for great graces. He, he points out, do not ask for small things. Ask for great things because God desires to give us great things. So let us ask for those things to which God desires to give us. Um, three manners of receiving the Holy Communion. I'll skip that. That's just, uh, don't, commit, don't receive communion in mortal sin, receive communion holy. <clears throat> After Mass has ended, this is important, uh, St. Leonard points this out, and this is very important. After Mass has ended, do not just leave. 
He says, to drop to your knees and give thanks to God who has given you such a gift to be here. Then after you may leave with the posture and disposition of one who had climbed down from Calvary. Because you have to remember, the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the sacrifice at Calvary. What is not appropriate at Calvary is not appropriate at the Mass. So chit-chatting in the church, uh, turning around and talking to people, whispering over to someone next to you, it is not okay for the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Would, and here's a general rule. Would you do that if you were at, at the foot of the cross at Calvary? If you would not do that at the foot of the cross at Calvary, then it probably shouldn't be done at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. A warning for those who refuse such a treasure. How much time do I have? I had to cut this story short in this talk, and so here it is, the, the story uh, in full. Ananias Silvius, afterwards Pius XII, recounts how in a city in Germany there lived a person of distinction, the principal inhabitant of the place, who had fallen into great difficulties and had written into a country house with a view to economy. There, overwhelmed by a melancholy, he was on the verge of despair. The enemy saw this, and the temptation which he constantly instilled was a longing to slip a cord about his neck, and so have done with life. A dry tree, said the evil one, is good for nothing but the hatchet. In this conflict of grief and temptations, the nobleman had recourse to a holy confessor, who gave, who gave him this good advice. Do not let one day pass without hearing holy mass, and have no fear. He accepted the advice and promptly began to put it into execution. And in order to make sure of never losing Holy Mass, he gave a salary to a chaplain who, at his request, constantly offered the adorable sacrifice at which he took care to assist every morning with pious devotion. But it happened that one day his chaplain went at an early hour to a neighboring village to assist a young priest, who was about to celebrate his first Mass. The devout nobleman, fearing for that he would that day be deprived of the sacrifice, hastened to the same village in order to be present at it. On the way, he met a peasant who told him that he might as well turn back, because the last mass was ended. Much disturbed in mind, the nobleman began even to shed tears. Alas, what shall I do? He kept repeating. What shall I make of myself today? Perhaps it may be the last of my poor life. The countryman, who was astonished to see him so much agitated, and being himself a man of careless of his soul, he exclaimed, Pray, do not weep, my lord, do not weep. For my part, if it is a thing that can be done, I don't a bit mind selling you my share in today's mass. Give me that good cloak off your back, and for aught I care, my mass is yours this moment. The nobleman agreed gladly to the strange proposal, thinking he would take the chance of possibly getting something by it, at least for his good intention's sake. And so, handing over his cloak, he pursued his path toward the church. There he offered a short prayer, and on his return, had hardly got to the place where the bargain had been struck, when he saw the miserable man, who had conceived the profane and extravagant design of selling his mass, hanging by the neck from an oak, and already dead like another Judas. In fact, the temptation to self-destruction had, had passed into the unhappy peasant, who had voluntarily deprived himself of the aid which he might have had from the sacrifice. In designly, he left himself powerless to resist the malignant suggestions of the devil. Then the worthy nobleman began to perceive how effectual was the remedy which his confessor had advised, and was from that moment confirmed in his holy determination to daily assist at the divine mysteries. Imagine, God gave him the opportunity 
has given him the holy sacrifice of the mass to preserve him in his life. And this man being impious, being impious, he gave up that holy sacrifice for a monetary value. It sounds crazy that God would allow something like that to happen, but it's really not when you stop to think about it and think how you squander something. It'd be as if your family gave you like this wonderful, amazing gift, the most extravagant diamond ring with the most beautiful necklace and the most beautiful outfit and just have everything perfect and beautiful. And then someone goes up to you and says, you know what? I'll trade you all of that stuff I'll give you, I don't know, a dollar for it. How offensive is that to trade something that was so beautiful, so worthwhile, that was given at, given to you out of love and devotion for nothing? It is a great offense. So that's a short version of the story. I skipped a, a few portions of it. But essentially, what it said here, this man gave away his master and intention to this nobleman in exchange for his cloak, and because this man was not a holy man, because this man needed that holy mass, by giving it away, he did not have the grace necessary to survive, and so he ended up hanging himself. And St. Leonard tells a number of these stories of warnings of how, what disposition we must have about the holy sacrifice, the mass. He also gives a warning to priests as well, which I wish a uh, priest would read, because if you if some priests read this, they'd be absolutely horrified with themselves of their disposition at Holy Mass. I had not the chance to read the warning for priest, but I do want to include that here, just in case you were curious what St. Leonard had to say about priest, but also just in case there are any priests listening to this podcast, it is a good thing to warn a priest why they should assist at Mass or say Mass every single day and have devotion at these Masses. So let me read you this. And for you, O priest, tremble before the justice of God, if either by excessive haste or irreverent negligence you transgress the rules of the sacred ceremonies, if you hurry out your words or confuse the different acts, and in short bustle slipshod through your mass, reflect that then you consecrate, you touch, you receive the Son of the Most High, nor are you blameless in regard to each the very slightest ceremony which you either leave out or perform more or less imperfectly. Such is the teaching of the most learned Suarez when he treats of this question, vel unius seramincioni omissio culpa retorum retum inducit, whether the oracle of Spain, St. John of Avila, was always firmly of opinion that the eternal judge will in the case of priest make before everything else a most rigorous scrutiny into all the masses they have celebrated. Thus, when on occasion a young priest has departed to the other world just as he had barely finished his first mass, the holy man, hearing of his death, heaved a sigh and asked, had he ever offered mass? And when they told of his happy fate and dying so, so soon at his first mass was celebrated, ah, he resumed, he has much to thank God for if he has once celebrated mass. For you and I, who have celebrated so many, how shall we pass before the tribunal of God? Let us then make this holy resolution to restudy, at latest in our first spiritual retreat, all the rubrics of this missal. And if we, if we priest shall generally celebrate, 
all the rubies of the missile, and all the sacred ceremonial, so as to celebrate for the future with all the exactness possible. It is my hope that if we priests shall generally celebrate with serious and devout exterior composure, in what is far more with thorough interior fervor of soul, the laity will return to daily hearing of Holy Mass and to hearing it with deepest devotion. Thus, we shall have the joy of beholding, renewed in the Christians of our time, all the fervor of the first believers of God's church. And thus will our most gracious and almighty God be supremely honored and glorified, the sole and single aim of this poor word. There you go. There's your warning for priest. Last thing I'm going to say, and then we'll conclude, is the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Blessed Virgin Mary, think about her. Think about the joy and the magnificence that Our Lady had at the moment of the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel came down from heaven and told her she would bear a son and his name would be Emmanuel. What does our, how does Our Lady respond? She says, My soul proclaimeth the greatness of God. My soul magnifieth the Lord. Whenever our Lord came into her womb and she visited St. Elizabeth, the infant and the child leapt with joy when Our Lady came. Our Lady carried our Lord in her, in her womb. Now imagine our, our Lady's sorrow at Calvary. Our Lady there who had our Lord in her womb, who raised our Lord in her home, who watched Him His whole life, sees her beloved Son and her God. She looks up at the cross and she sees Him on the cross. What disposition does Our Lady have? What love is in Our Lady's heart? What sorrow, what person could look at Our Lady's face and not break into tears seeing the Holy Mother in such sorrow and sadness? <laughs> and then think about the joy that Our Lady had when John the Apostle gave her Holy Communion. When John the Apostle gave her Holy Communion and she received Holy Communion and it is like the angel Gabriel is coming to her yet again and giving our Lord to her and she receives him into her and is united with him bodily again. Like How beautiful that is. And that's the disposition we should have at Holy Mass. We should contemplate how Our Lady would react to the things happening at Holy Mass. How would Our Lady attend Holy Mass? Would we be playing this kind of music we play? Would we be wearing the kind of clothes we would wear if we were in front of the Blessed Virgin at this moment in time? Do we have the disposition of Our Lady? Do we love like Our Lady? Let's ask the Blessed Virgin Mary to give us this wonderful grace. Let's ask the Blessed Virgin Mary to help us to love like she did, to receive our Lord the way she did, and to have the, the disposition that she had at the foot of the cross. And with that, we'll close with the Hail Mary, asking Our Lady for these graces and giving thanksgiving for such a great thing that Our Lady has given to us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of Sorrows, Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. 
any questions, comments, concerns, soapbox negativities, positivities, or anything in between? So I wanted to succinctly say the question that was asked at this point. There is a question that was essentially, how did we get to the point today where there's so much irreverence for mass? When you look at more traditional parishes, you see pictures, videos, visiting traditional parishes, you see the grandeur of the priesthood, you see beautiful vestments, you see people dressed in a certain manner, yet in the vast majority of places, you don't see the same thing. How did we get here was the question that was asked, and here's my answer. So uh, it's a long story, but the long story short of it, it, it started pretty early on in the 30s and 20s. There was just a disposition that we were having, uh, revolutionary ideas were happening, uh, results of the French Revolution and other things. Um, and the popes at the time started combating this, what was called uh, modernism. It was the, the modernist heresies. And the, what modernism was, it's kind of a kind of amorphous idea because they said modernism is a synthesis of all heresies. The problem is modernism sounds okay, but is actually wicked. And so they try to say things that are not technically wrong, but are in fact wrong. And so to your, to your average person's ears, it's okay. And so they had these oaths against modernism that was required to be taken. So you're saying you're condemning these ideas over and over again. And they started praising these popes and saying, oh, you've defeated modernism. What did the popes say? They said, no, I did not defeat modernism. We have suppressed modernism. But if we do not become vigilant, it'll rise again and again and again. And sure enough, we see through the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, these things coming up. And at the eve of the Second Vatican Council, these things have been bubbling up for over like a century at this point. And Paul VI, John Twenty-Third, they were not as vigilant as the popes before them. They did not have the vision of the modernist heresies that were arising. And Paul VI even saw this when he said, the smoke of Satan has entered the church. And so we see these things uh, coming up. And then whenever they created the new mass, the new mass was created. And, they, and what the idea behind the new mass was, let's remove any stumbling blocks that would, be a, that would be a stumbling block to Protestants. And so they actually had Protestants uh, that were on the committee to create the new Mass. And so the idea was, well, we need to, and this is what Paul the, uh, John Twenty-Third said, we need to open the windows and let in some fresh air into the church. And what happened? Well, we see what Paul VI said. Well, when we threw open the doors and uh, let the fresh air in, the smoke of Satan entered into the church. Um, and so from there we have the, uh, the Mass, and then once we change the way we pray, the disposition also changed. So we, uh, we had this iconostasis, this sonic iconostasis, which iconostasis was, and if you go to the Eastern churches, they have a, uh, a screen that's made of icons, and you literally can't see what's happening on the other side. And that's where the priest is saying mass. In the, in the Roman tradition, we had an open screen, like a rune screen, which happens if you ever look at Anglican churches, they usually have those kind of things, and where the altar rail is, so you see a clear delineation from the sanctuary, from where the people are sitting. And there's also a sonic iconostasis, where there's a distinction, a difference between the Latin that is being spoken. So it shows this is something different. And then when we brought familiarity to things, everything became more casual. Um, and so all these things built up over time, all these small changes here and there, um, leading to where we are today. So the things that we have, the tradition of the church was built to preserve the faith. And when we destroy those things that preserve the faith, well, over time, everything erodes and we end up where we are. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed everything you talked about. I mean, some of it, I mean, well, most of all of it was very valid points. Um, 
you know, the dressing, like he said, we just had discussed that and how, you know, I guess there are some other faiths and churches maybe that do still require you to dress up, you know, I'm not sure which ones, but, but, uh, you're not, uh, you're not thinking of being a priest or? Uh, I actually joined the Dominican Friars briefly and I just turned out, so I came back uh, home, uh, but we'll see what, what God has in mind for me. Thank you very much. Okay, another question that was asked right here was essentially, why can we not go to fake churches? And by fake churches, I mean Catholic, non-Catholic churches, meaning Protestant churches, pagan churches, Hindu churches, heretic churches, etc. Uh, why cannot we? Why can we not go there? False churches are exactly that. They're false churches, and they teach things that are contrary to the faith. And it's a and it's a. Uh, sin against the virtue of religion to go to other to false churches because our lord has created a religion the true faith for us and these other religions uh especially like the the heretical religions like the protestant church uh pagan religions are a different category they have their own categories but the heretical religions of the protestants um were created against the church they were they are antichrist. They're not like the antichrist that we see in scripture, but they are antichrist. They're against Christ's church because they, by their definition, by their creation, they are Protestant. They are protesting the church. And so they are against the holy religion, against the true faith. And we see that throughout the, uh, the founders. So even like you might say like, oh, well, so-and-so doesn't, my friend who's a Protestant doesn't believe that. And that's probably true. Most, I mean, Protestants have different beliefs. Every Protestant you meet, you meet one Protestant, you meet one Protestant. Um, but the actual foundation of the religions are antichrist. So Luther, he would talk about, who was a founder of the Protestant Revolution, he would talk about how um, the, he would draw characters, he would draw these cartoons, and he would draw the Pope with a excrement on his head instead of, a, instead of the papal tiara. He would uh, denigrate and, dis and disrespect the Holy Mass. Uh, Calvin would insult uh, the Holy Religion. And the later reformers would even insult the Blessed Virgin Mary. The initial reformers actually had a great deference for the Blessed Virgin. The later reformers, uh, reformers uh, hated the Blessed Virgin. And so all these things, they, they are taught, and it's also in the very worship. So even if things aren't taught explicitly against the faith, it's implicit in the actions and in everything else that is done at the Mass. Uh, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira, he's actually said, whatever is not explicitly rejected is implicitly accepted. And so that's why he would say, like, when you see these hideous modernist sculptures, that you should explicitate why that is ugly and why you reject those ugly statues. Because those things that are given out, same thing with music, with horrible music, um, with heretical music, with blasphemies, with sacrilege, you have to reject them. Because if you do not reject them, if you just kind of let it be, you just take it in, you're implicitly accepting it. And the same thing with going to false churches. You go to this false church, you have start fostering this idea that all religions are the same, that uh, you can be saved outside of the Catholic Church, that these uh, religions have uh, salvific elements to them. Is it true that there are elements of truth there? Yeah, sure. There are things that are true. I mean, Protestants believe that Jesus is God for one. That's true. They tend to believe in the creed. Um, it depends on the Protestant religion, of course, but they tend to believe in the creed. But those things that are true are only true insofar as it is in relation to the Catholic Church because they took those things from the church and they created their own religion and they excised many of the other tr true things of the church. For instance, uh, if you go to most, uh, most Protestant churches, they usually believe in one 
maybe two or zero sacraments. One of those three. Um, and so they're rejecting the salvific nature of grace. Not to mention that their ministers are not valid ministers. So if they confect the Eucharist, because you have Lutheran churches that are high church, or you have these Methodist churches or Anglican churches who are high church, and they actually have a liturgy that's similar to the Catholic liturgy. But even those are harmful to go to because they are not valid ministers. So when they're consecrating the Eucharist, nothing has actually happened. You're eating bread and wine. Um, and when you go to these false religions and you participate in their worship, then you are actually professing unity with a false religion. You're professing unity with a false church. And that separates you from the true church. So as if you profess unity with a false church, you are rejecting the true church. And so because of that, you cannot go to other, uh, to false religions. Now the question of like, okay, but what if my brother is going to get married and he's a Protestant and it's a church? Well, then you have to go into particular cases and you need to be prudent about which ones you go to, which ones you don't go to. If your brother is an apostate, so if your brother was Catholic and he left the faith and is getting married outside of the church, well, I would say do not, you should not go to that mass because you are showing that you are accepting and you are confirming his actions. But if you are a convert to the faith and your brother is a Protestant, he was never Catholic and he's getting married, well, then actually his, uh, his marriage would be a valid marriage. And so you could actually attend. You can't participate in the actual uh, uh, service, but you could uh, watch. You could be a passive, what's called passive observer. So you can go, you can observe, uh, support your family uh, without actually participating in the worship. Uh, so there's difficult cases. Funerals is another case. Um, but whenever it comes to Catholics, though, Catholics, because we are Catholic, we are bound by the laws of the church. So if you leave the faith and get married outside of the church, your marriage is invalid. Your marriage is not a valid marriage. And so you are actually living in adultery when you're married outside of the church. Um, so that's very, very important. Um, is, this is, yeah, it's very, very important because we, when we start doing these kind of things, we create a religious indifferentism and we kind of say that all religions are the same and this is a pernicious heresy that will damn people. So that's very, very pernicious. Yeah. Anything else? So very, very interesting. All of it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate yes, it. Absolutely. You know, talking about that, though, about, you know, what you're just talking about. I mean, we were in a store and they were handing, somebody was handing out little flyers and it was something about religion. I don't know what it was. And this is, and I was already going to St. Francis Inn. I was trying to get into, you know, he said, give me that. And he said, we don't, we're only, you're going to be Catholic and this has nothing to do with Catholic. And he just, you know, <laughs> I was going to read. He said, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why we had, we used to have a, a book of forbidden books, a collection of forbidden books, books that Catholics were not allowed to read um, because they're harmful to the faith. They're damaging to the faith um, and things that are damaging to the faith you should avoid. Just like uh, even more so if something is damaging to the body, you should avoid if something is damaging to the soul, then even more so you should have avoid, um, because those that damn the body, if you heart, if you if you kill the body, then who cares at the end of the day? But if you damn your soul, then nothing else matters. So yeah, very important. Who are the Catholic religion without adding any other stuff? 
Exactly. I mean, you, we get enough confusion from our Catholics. We don't need it from everyone else, too. Alrighty, that will do it for today. Praise be to God. Thank you very much for joining us today. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, soapboxes, and negativities, positivities, or anything in between, you can email me at fonsecaproduction at gmail.com. Or the best way to get a hold of me is actually to comment down below if you're watching on YouTube and, and do that. That would be the easiest and fastest way for me to get back to you. And uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this with anyone that you think would find this interesting. I have links to everything I mentioned in the description below and if i don't have a link let me know in the comments and i'll try to add it and i think that'll that'll do it for today so let's end in a hell mary even though i already did one uh let's say an ave for the uh for reverence to holy mass in the name of the father the son and the holy ghost amen ave maria gratia plena dominus tecum benedicta tua mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui jesus santa maria mater dei ora pro nobis peccatoribus nunc et in ora mortis nostri amen in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost amen